Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode features one of the three guests on my hour-long NPR show, heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the family-owned foreman pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Good enough for you to eat, but your cats won't appreciate that. I am delighted to get a chance to talk to Marie Sato Quicksall. It was, a, a, I thought, sort of a funny situation. I was at the VMX veterinary conference and was becoming aware that there were a lot of companies as well as a lot of doctors interested in and, and invested in the topic of diversity and inclusion. And I was in a, a speaker's lounge talking to a vet, and I saw these three or four women at a table, I thought, well, I'm just going to go over and ask them, is this something of any interest to them? Of course, these were the main women giving speeches about diversity, which was sort of ludicrous in a way. Marie, it's wonderful to have you on the show. And thank you for letting me interrupt you in the middle of preparing for a major presentation you were giving. You must have thought I was a little nutty to just come over and plunk myself down and go, hi, I want to talk about diversity. Is that okay? <laughs> no, I mean it. It definitely happens. Those uh, those speaker rooms and conferences are actually a good way to to network and get some of that information out there. Well, I'm sorry that I wasn't aware of it sooner in my life, mm -hmm. both personally and professionally. And the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, which was started in 2014, which was a long time ago, um, and that you were a founding board member of since 2017. Does this feel a little uh, warped to you in a way that it's all these years later that suddenly this topic is rising to the surface so that it, people, whether it's someone in the media like me or other veterinarians, be they white or non-white, are recognizing an issue that you realized from the time you were in veterinary school as a first-year veterinary student? Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of people, um, particularly BIPOC, uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, we've known for a long time it was an issue in veterinary medicine, um, but it was hard to get a wider audience. And up until mm, the last handful of years, there really weren't a lot of organizations that were focused on it. It was mostly people um, working on an individual level, which is, is great, and we're glad that those people were out there doing that and continuing to do that work. But um, one of the reasons we founded the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association is so we could have a collective voice um, and, and have a little bit more um, 
sway that way as, as a collective voice instead of just individuals. Um, but a lot of the, there are lots of other affinity organizations now, but a lot of them are, um, you know, similar timeline to us or, or younger, you know, um, we, our first board formed in 2017. Um, so we were originally a, a, an online group and then um, formalized in, in 2017. Um, and so a lot of the other organizations are even younger than that. But now that there's um, multiple organizations, we're, we're getting a little bit more, um, you know, influence, a little bit more networking um, and have a little bit more um, voice like I said, collectively versus as individuals. It must seem like some sort of a relief to you. When you you were born in Japan to a Japanese and mm-hmm. American parents and were a toddler when you moved to the U.S. and grew up in Columbus, Ohio. So what mm-hmm. was that like for you growing up? Did you feel other than or different than? Is Columbus, Ohio a, a very white, Midwestern-y kind of place? I'm an ignoramus about these things, so I <laughs> truly don't know. Um, yes, it, it, there's a small amount of diversity there. Where I grew up, it wasn't very diverse. It was a, a very um, white suburb um, in Ohio. And um, yeah, there were very few families of color um, and even fewer that were mixed race like my family. So um, I think in my entire elementary school, there was only one other family that was mixed race um, that happened to live in our neighborhood. Wow. So. Um, yeah, so it was, you know, especially being um, not just biracial, but bicultural, I'm, I'm yes. a dual citizen and, and have families that come from two different countries. Um, you know, there was uh, not always a lot of understanding of, of why I did some things differently or um, why I had a different perspective on things, why I didn't do some things that some of my classmates did. Um, you know, and, and uh, I think I had a lot of the common Asian American um, experiences, you know, uh, showing up to school with chopsticks and getting made fun of in the cafeteria, those types of things happen. Wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's a, um, something that is a, a, a shared experience among a lot of, of people of color, particularly that, that grew up in, in areas that were not very diverse. Um, as I got through my schooling and, and went to uh, college, you know, I went to Ohio State for both undergrad and vet school and and uh, in undergrad, it was very diverse. You know, there are people from all over the country, all over the world, different uh, backgrounds, um, a lot more diversity. And, and then after four years of that and feeling like I could, you know, breathe a little and wasn't the only one that was different, uh, I entered into veterinary school and it was um, white or as whiter or as white as, as my uh, high school was. And um, that was a, a very stark difference to me going from something that was, you know, not diverse to a more diverse environment and then back to an environment that was not very diverse. It was, uh, it was very obvious to me, um, the difference literally in my first day of vet school, I, I noticed it. So it, it just jumped right out at you. It's, it's yes, interesting yeah. that, that, or, or obvious to anyone who is other than the mainstream that, I didn't realize what a burden this was. I really didn't, and I'm sort of trying to make up for it and hoping that my listeners and audience can understand it too. The idea of having chopsticks where I went to fancy private schools, so if somebody would have come in with – we had um, Asian students. We had a smattering of everything because rich private schools do that, right? But they're still other than because most of the people are rich and white. But – in the where I grew up, it'd be like, oh, that's really cool, and what's in your lunchbox that's different than mine. But that's not the general experience of school. If you're other than, mm-hmm. you're ostracized in some way, or made to feel less than, or just an outsider. So it's sort of a, a, a big awareness to realize that that people who've obviously excelled in college in order to get into vet school and then are in vet school that even there 
there was and still is a feeling of not being included, not being welcomed. You were in your first year and started a a group, I mean, called Voice as a first-year veterinary student. I think that's pretty amazing because that showed a lot of courage and guts. I don't know how how strong you were as a kid or how strong your family background was to make you feel empowered to speak up, but you founded the Ohio State Chapter of Voice, which is now called Veterinarians mm-hmm. as One Inclusive Community for Empowerment. That's that's pretty bold. You could have just kept your head down and right under the radar and just done your work and hope to to get through it. Yeah, I mean that was it was actually kind of a, a um, you know I, I noticed it like I said on my first day of vet school it was literally orientation and we were taking a a tour through the vet school and and I can see you know all the students around me um, you know the, they have portraits of some of the prior classes and stuff on the walls and I was you know, just very surprised. I didn't realize that, that all of veterinary medicine was so, um, so white. I mean, statistically around 90% of veterinarians are white and it's one of the whitest professions in the country. And, and that statistic really hasn't changed. And um, it hasn't changed since I graduated. Um, it's still around that, um, around that number. And, and I literally noticed it on the first day. Um, and so uh, I think it was like about a month into classes, they had a, a fireside chat with the um associate dean of students and i went to it and and any of the students could come in and talk to the the dean of students and said hey did you is anybody working on this like why is vet school why is this vet school not diverse is this a a main thing that's going on in veterinary medicine is anybody paying attention to this and um and uh, fortunately the dean of students um at the time was was very supportive and she's like oh well um cornell has this group voice and they want to take it national yeah, and so she actually um, got me hooked up with the the national um, voice, and I, I founded the Ohio State chapter. And uh, you know, I just felt like it was, um, ha- like I said, having gone from a, a non diverse environment and then feeling much more comfortable in undergrad and and being able to find my uh, my people and and um, and feel like I wasn't um, always the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going back into that environment, I felt like I really wanted to to do something. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a family that have, uh, very supportive of that and, and some, uh, activists and things in my family. So, um, I decided, you know, if that was the best way to get it done was by doing some of that work myself, then, then I was going to do that and, and kind of just continued from there. I'm impressed because it does take a lot of guts and courage because now you're actually waving a flag saying, hi, I'm different and it doesn't feel great. Anybody else want to kind of join me in that conversation? I think it's very bold and very brave and it's hard enough to get into medical school and then do well in it and then go on and have a career. So that's amazing to be have been that young and known that in order to get make change, you have to be part of change. In the meantime, you practiced as a vet in Pittsburgh and then mm-hmm. and, and also um, very recently became certified as a veterinary acupuncturist, which is pretty fabulous because we we can we can never have enough acupuncturists. But you now practice on Bainbridge Island, Washington, which I am completely riveted by, not only because supposedly is where pickleball was born, which is my current complete and entire obsession, but because when the dog and cat film festivals were in Seattle, we also played in the theater on Bainbridge Island, where there was a very good shelter, very vibrant and very active. And I just didn't know there was this gorgeous little island off the coast that was a little universe of its own. How did you wind up practicing there? Do you live, you obviously must live on the mainland if you don't live on Bainbridge Island. 
Yeah, I live I live on the peninsula just uh, off of it. There's a, a bridge over. So, um, yeah, I mean, my um, I ended up in Ohio um, as a as a kid because of my dad's job. But my mom's family is all from Western Washington. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to move to be closer to family. And when I was looking for jobs, um, you know, fortunately, being a small animal general practitioner, there's a lot of flexibility in where you live and um, happened to come across a, a job listed on Bainbridge Island. My two bosses also happened to have gone to Ohio State, so no. we had a little connection there. Wow. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, three of us at the practice went to Ohio State, even though we were in Washington. That's crazy. So, well, yep. how white is Bainbridge Island? I mean, just to put it right out there. Um, so it's it's more diverse than where I grew up. Um, it's still predominantly white, but it is uh, more diverse. And, um, and Western Washington in general has a lot of... Um, a lot of people that have moved from other parts of the country and other parts of the world too. So um, in addition to just, you know, racial and ethnic diversity, there's more diversity on, you know, people that, you know, lived all over. Um, nice. There's two or there's multiple Navy bases as well. So we get a lot of people that move around for the, the Navy and Coast Guard and stuff. So um, people I think are a little bit more understanding of, um, you know, people who have come from a different background just because they meet a lot of people that have come, you know, grew up in other parts of the country, traveled to different parts of the world, um, come from different parts of the world. So um, I feel like the, it's a little bit more understanding than um, than where I grew up. Well, that kind of worked out perfectly for in, in many ways. I, I think what's interesting to me about the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, of which you're a past president and you're the treasurer, I think, now, but you've been on the board yeah. pretty much from the get-go, is the the declaration that veterinary medicine is one of the, and I'm quoting, least culturally, racially, and ethnically diverse professions in America. And your group was Mm -hmm. formed to address this need, as well as creating access to veterinary care in those underrepresented communities of non-white people who might be thrilled to not only see a vet or a vet tech that looks more like them, or certainly not like the, whatever the majority might be if they live in a, a very white area, but might um, learn more that, about things that a veterinarian can do for them where they might have felt perhaps uncomfortable going to one or might felt judged or uh, just as though it's easier not to go than to go. Because obviously, in the end of the day, mm-hmm. you're interested in serving animals as well as the humans mm-hmm. who own them. So the only way you can do that is if people bring them in, which on Bainbridge Island mm-hmm. isn't a problem, but I imagine that in less wealthy neighborhoods with less access to care, whether it's human care or veterinary care, that becomes an issue. So how do you increase that awareness? I mean, of the fact that being a veterinarian is a, is, is a worthy pursuit and we want to make you welcome. How do you do that? Yeah, so it's definitely a... Um you know, not one one answer, one right, solution. Of so, yeah, I mean, we we know that you know some studies have shown that a lot of people who become veterinarians decide at a very young age. I think it was around uh, average age of like eight years old. Wow. Most people decide they want to be veterinarians. And um, I was five when I decided <laughs> I want to be a veterinarian. <laughs> wow. Um, so you know, there's definitely people who decide later and for or change careers or things. But I think the average age is around eight. So letting people know, letting kids know at a younger age that it's that it is an option. Um, that they can see themselves as a veterinarian or technician um, or, you know, working in the veterinary field um, can, is, is important. And, and some of it is, you know, lack of exposure. There's um, large portions of the country where there aren't vet clinics available. And so, you know, even if people 
um, wanted to take their animal to the vet, they just don't have any way to, to get to one. There isn't one nearby. That's right. Um, and so if they, if they have no exposure um, or if the limited exposure they have is, is, you know, always people who don't look like them and don't come from their same background, it makes it harder for, um, for kids to recognize that that is an option. Um, so, you know, uh, exposure is one of the things that we see. Um, also, you know, trying to make sure that the veterinary profession is, is welcoming. Um, so, you know, if, if people are used to, um, you know, ha- being a, a person of color and then maybe going to a practice that doesn't um, understand maybe their cultural differences or, um, uh, you know, accents or, you know, language barriers or those types of things, then, um, you know, that they may feel less welcome. Um, and then uh, less likely to bring their pet in for care um, and less likely to, you know, view that as a, as a viable career option. Um, and, you know, and I've talked to, you know, multiple students of color and, and other people um, of color that have, you know, came to veterinary medicine late in life. And they said, you know, no one ever, I didn't realize this was an opportunity. I didn't even know what a veterinary technician right. was. You know, I didn't right. necessarily want to do all the schooling for vet school, but man, if I would have known about being exactly. a veterinary technician, maybe I would have done that instead. Or, you know, I didn't go to take the right college classes because nobody, you know, explained it to me, you know, what classes I needed to go to vet school or that, um, you know, those types of things. So that kind of knowledge, we're, we're hoping to, to bridge some of that. And, um, you know, it's hard to reach every every corner of the country, but, you know, we're, our board is, is national and, and we have a, a network um, now. So we're, we're trying to do what we can um, and, you know, taking some, some of those little first steps to try and, and improve those things and, and, you know, have lectures and panels where there yes. are people of color. So kids and, and um, even, you know, adults and stuff can see people who look like them that are in the field and are thriving and, and can know that it is, it is possible. Well, I think it's great. Our time has, has run out, Marie, but I just want to say to anyone listening who is a teacher or a grandparent or a parent, or even if any 10-year-olds are listening, you're two years late to the party, kids. At eight years old, you should have known you wanted to be a veterinarian. And whoever you are, it's possible. So thank you so much to you, Dr. Marie Sato Quicksall, and all of your colleagues for trying to remind everybody that anyone who wants to be a vet could be a vet. They just need a, a village to help to help them get there. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will support all of these companies because they stand behind my mission, which is to bring you delightfully informative Pet Talk Radio. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. They make many non-chemical products for the inside and outside of your pets, as well as innovative foods like no-hide chews and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which sometimes is all that my Weimaraner Maisie will eat. I'm very grateful also to Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two extraordinary women, Allison and Hannah, who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thanks again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one guest version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.